All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fuck nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. Welcome to it. Nice to have you. How's everything going with you? Did you all have a nice Super Bowl Sunday? Did you cook the things? Did you have the people over? Did you make the dip? Did you get shit-faced? Did anybody throw up? Were there big problems? I am recording this as literally, I guess, the Super Bowl is underway as I record this. And I will actually tell you, and this is not coming from any position of condescension or judgment, but I've never watched a Super Bowl in my life. And again, I'm not being judgmental. If that's the way you want to spend your Sunday on that once a year, you know, have fun. It seems like people enjoy it. Uh, I know that people get excited about the commercials. I think that's once once that started, I realized I'm happy I'm out. I, I have nothing against sports. Just know that. I really don't. Some sports I don't understand. Some sports are more interesting than others. But I don't know. Maybe that's what I'm lacking. I, God knows I've talked about that a lot. So listen, today on the show, Ed Zwick is here. He's the director of Glory, the movie, great movie, watched it again. Legends of the Fall, one of my my favorites, actually. The Last Samurai, fun movie. I don't know if people call it fun, but it's a good movie. The Siege, many other movies he directed. He's the co-creator of the television series 30-something and Once and Again, 30-something. That was a big deal. That almost single-handedly defined boomer culture post the big chill on its own. So he's got this new memoir out. It's called Hits, Flops, and Other Illusions, My 40-something Years in Hollywood. And it's kind of a, a how-to. It's, there's a lot of you know, practical advice for people who want to be in motion pictures in this book. But there's some good stories, too. I enjoy talking to the guy. Tour dates. Portland, Maine. I'm at the State Theater on Thursday, March 7th. Medford, Massachusetts at the Chevalier Theater on Friday, March 8th. Providence, Rhode Island at the Strand Theater on Saturday, March 9th. Terrytown, New York at the Terrytown Music Hall on Sunday, March 10th. Atlanta, Georgia. I'm at the Buckhead Theater on Friday, March 22nd. Boise, Idaho. Just added. I'm at the Egyptian Theater on Saturday, March 23rd as part of the Comedy Fort at Treefort Music Fest 2024. That would be this year. I guess I didn't have to say that part. Madison, Wisconsin at the Barrymore Theater on Wednesday, April 3rd. Milwaukee, Wisconsin at the Turner Hall Ballroom on Thursday, April 4th. Chicago at the Vic Theater on Friday, April 5th. Minneapolis at the Pantages Theater on Saturday, April 6th. Austin, Texas at the Paramount Theater on Thursday, April 18th as part of the Moon Tower Comedy Festival. Go to WTFPod.com slash tour for tickets. Yeah, it's coming up. All the dates. I was fortunate that uh, I did the two dates. Then I conveniently broke my foot. Well, it was actually the day of the San Diego shows. But now I've, you know, I don't really start the tour in earnest till March 7th. So hopefully it'll be all better by then. Pow! Look out! I just shit my pants. Just coffee.co up. That's a classic. Classic ad that sometimes follows the slurp, which I didn't intend to. It was almost reflex. Anyway, look, you guys, sad news. Now, we've had many former guests 
pass away. And it used to be before we, before so many of the episodes were available, we'd repost episodes if they were behind the paywall out of respect for the, um, for the dead. But here's a guy who died last week at age 66, which is not old. Mojo Nixon. Mojo Nixon. Apparently he had what they're calling a cardiac event in his sleep while on an outlaw country cruise docked in San Juan. Mojo Nixon. His real name was Neil McMillan, but he went by Mojo Nixon because, as he said, they were two words that shouldn't shouldn't go together. Now, he was on a live WTF back in 2011. Now, the thing about Mojo Nixon, Mojo Nixon and Skid Roper did a few records. That was his, his partner. And I saw them once at the Paradise Theater in Boston. And I got such a fucking kick out of this guy's energy. It was crazy. It was, a, it was sort of a blues, country, novelty act thing. He played guitar. And uh, I think Skid played a washboard. At some point, you know, uh, Mojo was playing a water bottle. And they did a bunch of, of silly songs, certainly. Many of them were silly. Uh, some of them were silly. Like, he did Elvis's Everywhere. He did a song called uh, I Ain't Gonna Piss in No Jar. One of my favorites. I'm Gonna Dig Up Howlin' Wolf. Great. Great song. Dark. But, you know, satire. Dirty. He was crass. He did uh, The Amazing Bigfoot Diet. He did... There's so many... Burn down the malls, Jesus at McDonald's. Okay, so this guy was really a novelty act in a way, but I liked the way he played guitar, and I liked the way he sang, and I liked his energy. And I remember when we got him on, it was it was a live WTF. I was so fucking excited, I couldn't believe that I got Mojo Nixon on my show. It was uh, it was live. It was taped at the Steve Allen Theater in Los Angeles, as I said, in October two. 2011. He was on the show with Jonah Ray, Steve Mazin, Maranzo Vance, Jim Earl, and Eddie Pepitone. We released that as episode 241. And out of respect and in memoriam, I want to play for you the segment I did with Mojo Nixon, real name Neil McMillan, on this live WTF. So, Rest in peace, Mojo. Rest in peace, Neil. I really got a kick out of you, buddy. Here we go. How you doing, man? I'm good, Mark. How are you? I'm fucking great. I'm thrilled that you're here. I saw you in the Paradise in Boston, and uh, you were pounding on water jugs. And I, I was the uh, Sonic Love jugs, yeah. and we were talking about psychedelic mushrooms. You, yeah. weren't, you weren't high, were you? Oh, yeah, I was. Was, back, back when you was high. Yeah, it was really high. So, and it was like speaking to me, all the noise. <laughs> so and now what, what, happened to, uh, what happened to Skid? Skid Roper's currently serving time in Louisiana. We can't talk about that right oh, here. No. Are you serious? Uh, no, I'm fucking lying. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm a musician. I'm full of shit. <laughs> What's more full of shit than a comedian? A musician. A musician. <laughs> <laughs> Where you been, man? Well, I've been down in San Diego. I've been working on the radio. I'm on Sirius Satellite Radio. In fact, I have a political talk show. It's called Lion Cocksuckers. Yeah. 
you know, it's you know, because that's what politicians are. Absolutely. In fact, you were talking about Bush earlier. I started it because you know Bush invaded Iraq, which had nothing to do with 9/11, and nobody was saying anything about yeah. it. Yeah. So I got, I I would go on like 27 minute rants. Yeah. You know, that had a lot of and another thing. Yeah. And I'd just be record these things and beat, the, and I'd see my face in the mirror. I looked like Hitler giving one of them damn speeches. <laughs> my hair is all going. I'm sweating. I'd have a headache afterwards. And, and the, must, the mustache you had didn't help at all. No, no, no. <laughs> so what? Well, well, how you feeling now? What's the, what I, you know? I'm pretty much done with music. Uh, I've been doing. I, really? I host this show, uh, Outlaw Country, every weekday afternoon. Yeah. That's kind of Steve Earle, Lucinda Williams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, rednecks hopped up on goofballs. Sure. How about the originals? George Jones. Oh, George Merle. Jones, and, and all the way back to Jimmy Rogers. And yeah. All three Hanks, and we play all that. Music. Hank three is a fucking trip, man. Fuck Shelton is a motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can put it that way. And uh, so that's I do that, and I also have a NASCAR talk show. I'm yeah. from Danville, Virginia. I love NASCAR. I have a NASCAR talk. Show called Manifold Destiny. <laughs> and you have to say it like that every time, just fucking exhausting. <laughs> I did the show last night. I yeah. did the show last night, and I know it's a good show when somebody goes, Hey, Manifold. They start calling me. It's supposed to be Man- Mojo Nixon's Manifold Dexter. Right. They start calling me, Hey, Manifold, man, tell me about that race. <laughs> <laughs> Now that's sort of like it's it's weird because most of us, uh, you know, sort of uh, northern-minded liberal fucks think that NASCAR is just for morons. No, 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 no. All sports is stupid. NASCAR, <laughs> right? You're chasing a ball, right? Yeah. All sports is stupid. NASCAR is just our stupid sport. <laughs> but here, here's the thing: yeah. NASCAR starts with guys running moonshine. Yeah. Running moonshine, they got these hopped-up cars to get away from the revenueers. Yeah. Some some genius goes, "Why don't we put those cars in a circle? We'll sell beer and fried chicken, and we'll, maybe we'll have a bluegrass band, and we'll start butt dancing." Yeah. And then all through the hills of Southern Virginia and North Carolina, you can hear that. Woo! Yeah. Scaring the living shit out of you Yankees. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's really how it started. I did. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> but do, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Danville, Virginia, which yeah. is right on just north of Chapel Hill. Grew up in a small town, you know, and uh, I went to college in Ohio. I didn't know I was a hillbilly. Yeah. Until I raised my hand in class and said, sir, that's the epitome. (laughs) When's anybody going to say epitome in Danville, Virginia? (laughs) I could read. (laughs) Do you really come from hill people? Nah, you know, my parents parents are from small towns in North Carolina, and they were desperate, you know, to be middle class. Yeah. Because they grew up during the Depression, and they were dirt poor. Yeah. But they were hillbillies. They, yeah. they didn't have chickens in the yard, but their parents did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, like, did you, so you grew up with, like, that, that, that whole diet? Yeah. The, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And, you know, all, all I did, my mother used to have a uh, can, a coffee can full of bacon grease yeah. back behind the stove. Yeah. Oh, yeah, she'd just reach in there. Oh, she'd get the good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm in the shape I'm in today. <laughs> I ain't going to be going jogging. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't you hurt your hand walking? I hurt my hand, yeah. I was getting so fat and so old, I ran my hand into a door jam and it swolled up. It looked like a tick was on there or something. (laughs) There's a lot of ticks around here. (laughs) 
I need some water. I can't. My my mouth done got all dry. I asked, like I was going to drink before the show. Yeah. I got to drive back to San Diego. Yeah. Look, I can drunk drive, but 110 miles is my limit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting older. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Slow down. I used to. I swear, we used to play like club lingerie. We play club lingerie. <laughs> We drank through the whole show. We drank on the way home. Then I'd snort a big line of speed off the back of my hand. Make it through Camp Pendleton. Yeah. <laughs> back to San Diego. Uh, my wife say, how'd the show go? Oh, I'm good, baby. Shut up. Fine. <laughs> speed. That was a good one, huh? Oh, yeah. Some, yeah somebody gave me Adderall. Yeah. Oh, you know, they, yeah. They gave me seven. You, you really need Adderall. They yeah. gave me seven Adderalls. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd been awake for two days, and so I took one. Well, that was good. Yeah. So I took two more. <laughs> well, pretty soon, within a half hour, I've taken all seven. Yeah. That was on Sunday morning. I didn't go to sleep till Wednesday. Wednesday night. <laughs> and I just want to say I might have touched myself more than a hundred times. <laughs> and that's why I got these short pants on. I just, you know. Uh, easy access, huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Wore, wore the legs off, taking them off so much. They were full pants before you started taking yeah, yeah, the drugs. Yeah. Sometimes when you're that jacked Wait, up, is this, is really... this too much information? No, fuck no, man. I one time uh, took mescaline. And uh, I didn't think it was going to hit, so I waited four hours. I left the party. I got home, and it hit. And I didn't know what else to do but jerk off. And I sat there and jerked <laughs> off like three or four times. And every time I came, it was like Aztec pinball machine. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, was, it was like I was on a different planet, and I, and I thought everything was great. But as soon as I got done with that, I was like, should I go to the emergency room? <laughs> <laughs> That was a half and half drug experience. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, I was once on a, a bunch of speed. And, uh, I got really wasted, and then I was done cleaning my apartment, and I was drunk enough to go to my neighbor's apartment and ask if I can clean theirs. Yeah, I need to do some very spiritual vacuum cleaning. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just just let just let me clean up your bathroom. <laughs> I'm not weird, man. I'm just high. Yeah, you see me in the hall, man. It's okay, right? <laughs> I'm not the only one. No, <laughs> it's common. So what, now, what do you, what do you call the music you play? Country or psychobilly? Or well, what? you know, some people call it uh, psychobilly. Uh, you know, I always, I always thought what I did was get a little hillbilly, you know, little rockabilly thing going. Then yeah. I start ranting and raving over it. Yeah. I tried to be David Bowie. Yeah, that didn't work out. Yeah. <laughs> did you? Were you I, in bands? Oh, I you? was in bands. I tried to be Mick Jagger. That didn't work out. <laughs> I should just do what I do best, which you know, I'd sit down and I'd get a little hillbilly boogie woogie going. Then I'd start telling a story. Well, actually, I'd start lying. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, extemporaneous pontification <laughs> yeah. is what I called it. You had some fucking great songs, man. Were the hits? Elvis is everywhere. Elvis is everywhere was the biggest hit, and uh, Debbie uh, stuffing Martha's muffin about yeah, old Mar Martha Quinn. Martha Quinn. Yeah, she still won't talk to me. <laughs> Don, Don Henley must die. Yeah. And, uh, now, did something weird happen with Don Henley? Don Henley got on stage in a place smaller than this and sang "Don Henley Must Die" with us. <laughs> And shut me the fuck up. <laughs> you know, I'm talking all shit, you know, and everything. And he gets up there and belts it out. He sh for once, I shut up. Oh, fuck. Do you guys still talk? Nah, or? fuck Don Henley. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking. The Eagles are nothing but the country monkeys of the 70s. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> Who's your guys, though? Who are your guys? 
I like um, I like Elvis. I like I like Bruce. Yeah. I like you know. Look, I'm a hate-filled psycho. Yeah. There's a tiny bit of me that believe Bruce a romantic with a big R, and and I want to believe that rock and roll can save my life. Yeah. Because ain't nothing else. Politics ain't gonna save my life. Yeah. Pussy ain't gonna save my life. No. Booze and drugs. Apparently, you know, jacking off the Adderall ain't gonna save my life. No. But it'll get you through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a rough spot. Yeah. <laughs> But rock and roll will save your life. Rock and roll, and I'm a believer in rock and roll. I'm a believer in the power of music. Mm-hmm. You know, there's. Uh, I went. I, I moved to England in 1979. My plan was to join the to join the Clash. Yeah. I, w- I lived in a squat in Brixton. I, you know, and, uh, and, and did they know you were there? Now later, though, later I met Joe Strummer through the Pogues. He goes, "Oh, yeah. he said, mate, you weren't the only one." You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no. So I, you know, and my parents wanted me to like to be a lawyer. Yeah. Because I was full. Of, you know, I was a bullshit artist. Yeah. I want to use my bullshit for good, <laughs> yeah, not yeah. for bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, I wrote a song, "Destroy All Lawyers." It's got a good line in it. Uh, they got their own bar where they drink pints of greed. Let's spay and neuter them so they can't breed. <laughs> <laughs> you want to do a couple songs? Sure, man. All right, let's set up a mic. That's good. All right, Mojo destroy. Nixon. Woo! I was going to do a song called uh, I Got Fired From My Job Today. But I thought of a better title. Wall Street Can't Suck My Dick. Wall Street Can't Suck My Dick. Lick My Long and Hairy Prick. Wall Street Can't. I'm going to need some help out there. I don't like banks. I don't like brokers. I don't like the Federal Reserve. I don't like jokers. Somebody needs to bail me out because I've been fucked over royally. Somebody needs to bail me out. Somebody needs to give me some grease. You know, give me a hand job, a reach around, a little grease. I mean, you go fuck Mojo in the ass. God damn it, man. Let me tell you something. Wall Street can't suck my dick. Wall Street can't suck my dick. Say it. Wall Street can't suck my dick. Say it. Wall Street can't suck my dick. Suck it in the morning, suck it in the evening, suck it at supper time. Suck it in the morning, suck it in the evening, suck it at supper time. (laughs) Now you might think, well, Mojo's just stalling because he's making this shit up as he goes along. Friends. I'm all for occupying Wall Street. I'm all for sticking it to the man. But I'm not sure that camping is going to scare millionaires and billionaires. 
a bunch of dudes high on mushrooms camping, beating on drums, may not get it done. You know what we need to do? We need to get all them Wall Street bankers and get them lined up in a big-ass line so they can... Wall Street can't suck my dick. Wall Street can lick my dick. Wall Street can suck my dick. Everybody, say Wall Street can suck my dick. Say it! Wall Street can suck my dick. Say it! Wall Street can suck my dick. Go listen to some Mojo Nixon and Skid Roper if you so desire. It's not everybody's thing. I enjoyed that guy. Sad he's gone. So look, Ed Zwick. Now, I got to be honest with you. I, I knew he had the book out and he got pitched to me. And I don't know that I knew all the movies that he directed. And it was quite amazing to watch Glory again. What a fucking movie, man. So... He wrote this book, Hits, Flops, and Other Illusions, My 40-something Years in Hollywood. Uh, comes out tomorrow, and here is uh, Ed and myself having a conversation. Ed, I'm Mark. Hey, Mark. Nice to meet you. Um, right away, you know, I've had uh, other directors in here. Not many. You guys are kind of hard to get. Because when you do work, it's for months on end. And, yeah. And uh, right out of the gate, you seem like a human person, pleasant guy. I like to think of myself in those terms. You exude some warmth. There's not a lot of swagger that I'm sensing. No. There's not a lot of, <laughs> you have nothing to prove to me. <laughs> and that's that's pleasant because you never, I never know. And your book is very good. And, and I'm not just blowing smoke up your ass because I don't always read memoirs because I'd rather talk uh-huh. and have it unfold. If I read too much of a memoir, then I'm like, well, in the book, you know? Yeah, all right. But I, I was do, I was reading parts of it, and I and I would have finished it had I not had to watch Glory again. All right. <laughs> so all that, right. All right. That's a, that's a good good reason. Right? Yeah. Because, you know, the chapter, I, I'm reading the chapter, I'm like, oh, shit, I didn't know. Oh, my God, really? And then you got to watch it again. Right. And I imagine that's going to happen with most of the movies. Well, that's what I'm hoping. I mean, I, I haven't watched, like, I am... Uh, I've, I've had some shame about it, but not for any real reason, just because I don't know a lot of people that speak as highly of it as I do. I, I find Legends of the Fall to be, it's like a guilty pleasure of mine. Like, yeah. I'll watch it whenever it's on, and I'll go out of my way to watch it every couple of years, because I love it. Uh-huh. But I don't talk to a lot of you know hipsters or guys my age, like, how about that, how about that Legends of the Fall? But it's a big movie. It was a big movie. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah I'm, it, it has a place in my heart, too. Yeah? Well, yeah. I mean, you made it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the thing I like about the book is also that, you know, you're clearly writing it, uh, you know, in, in relation to how you were mentored. There is a mentoring element to this book. Absolutely. That's, where, the, that's the intention. Yeah. and uh, But, you know, you weave the memoir part of it is good because you don't, you know, you're not playing uh, a victim in any way. You're not looking at your past as traumatic necessarily <laughs> in, in a way that that's what the book is about. But you fold in the stuff about your dad and about your mom and about, you know, about stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's not it's not the thrust of it. It's really it's it's a very um, well-balanced memoir between, you know, work, 
you know, how you got to where you are, and also reflecting on your family. Well, that's sort of the story of what it is to try to be an artist now. Uh-huh. Is to, you know, to somehow reconcile those two demands. And they're often, you know, in opposition. So Which two exactly? Work and yeah. family. Sure. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it doesn't seem like anybody who gets uh, a bit of momentum really uh, does that balance uh, quite right. Exactly right. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> like, it, I mean, there's a couple points in the book where you're like, I know I got a baby, but I got to. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yep. But the kids turned out okay. He's they're they're both okay actually. They're they're kind of great. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah, it's funny. Sometimes they they'll manage. You know, if you if you love them, the you know even if you don't have the the right amount of time with them, uh, they'll they'll manage. You'll be all right. Yeah, I mean, I I do credit my wife a little bit with having you know really set a certain course, and uh, it, it became pretty clear that if we really wanted to have a marriage, yeah, that I was going to be around, and yeah. whenever I could, yeah, and that sort of. That became the rhythm. But, yeah. But it was a little bit like the man who goes to sea for six months and then sure. comes home and has to sort of reorient and yeah. reintegrate. Yeah. And you, but you know, uh, different than that, uh, you know, the, your wife's not worrying that the ship will be lost. That's <laughs> fair in, enough. In, in form of a, a death, but uh, perhaps a starlet of some kind. Or, <laughs> but, it's a kind of a death. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Well, I mean, that's the other thing that I've been uh, sort of realizing lately, because uh, I've uh, every time I read a book like this and during award seasons. You know, no matter how many things I've accomplished in my life, I realize I'm not really in show business. I mean, I am, but not to the level mm -hmm. that you're operating. And and y the way you characterize movie stars, some of them, mm -hmm. and I've talked to a lot of them, uh, and I know a few, mm -hmm. uh, kind of, but I'm not too close. You don't want to get too close. Uh, but uh, not great. Uh, they're, 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 I, you seem to compartmentalize it by saying, well, they are of a kind, it's a rare breed, mm -hmm. and there are certain things you're going to have to tolerate. Yeah, but you, you know, you, you give something to get something. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's transactional in that regard. Uh, you know, I have, I have something that I want to accomplish, Yep. and what do I do in order to accomplish it? And part of that has to do with assuming different roles, yeah. and this, some of it is intimacy, and some of it is authority, and some of it is manipulation, and right. so, some of it is genuine fellow feeling. And it really shimmers yeah. from one person to the next, and sometimes even from one moment to the next. Sure. Now, where did you, you grew up where? Winnetka, Illinois. How far is that from Chicago? About 12 miles uh, north. So Chicago. Yeah, definitely Chicago. All about Chicago, yeah. all about the music scene, all about the theater scene there, and all of that. So when you were growing up, you know, uh, when were you born? What, I think you're like 10 years older than me. How, what, 52. Yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm 63. Uh -huh. So you're, uh, you're kind of mid to late boomer. Yeah. Right? Yep. So you're coming up in prime time. Uh, you're catching the tail end of the 60s. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was in Chicago during the the, the riots uh, downtown. I saw, I, I sat 68? in the- 68? 68. How old were you? 16. Oh, oh, so you were in it. Sat in the Chicago, sat in the trial, the yeah. court, courtroom for the Chicago 7 trial. You did? Yeah, I got, yeah, I was waited outside to do it. Yeah. And what, yeah, how'd you get into there? I had this amazing uh, teacher, actually, who yeah. was a kind of revisionist historian, uh, you know, sort of brought us, confronted this group of absolutely, totally um, ignorant and um, live yeah. teenagers yeah. and said, I'm going to show you the world. Right. And he took us downtown and he, um, you know, it was, 
it began, I met him as our homeroom advisor in about 1966. African-American guy. African-American guy. Yeah. And the only African-American teacher in an all-white privileged school. Now, you grew up in a Jewish neighborhood? I did. Well, okay. actually, no. Actually, the neighborhood was actually a wasp neighborhood. And and we were, uh, you know, a Jewish family in there with yeah. others. But right. it was not that. Okay. So this guy kind of uh, changed, you, you need one of those. He changed your life yeah, well, he cha- and your mind. He challenged me, and he challenged me in a lot of ways. I mean, probably the most significant ways, way he challenged me was to to go out for a wrestling team, Yeah, which I was utterly unprepared for. Yeah, I was this, you know, <laughs> well-behaved, so overly socialized kid. Yeah. And he taught me to get down and to find something in myself that I didn't know I necessarily had. Oh, yeah, and what do you think that was? Well, I remember. I mean, I lost every match because yeah. uh, I'd never done it before, and I was right. going up against these kids who were sure. great. But I remember it was toward the last uh, tournament, and he took me aside. He said, listen, here's the deal. These kids here, yeah, they're not afraid of hurting you, and you're afraid of hurting them. Yeah. And I sort of let go in that last match. At, we drew. And that was a, kind of a rocky moment. Yeah. Yeah. But a victory. But oh, definitely a victory <laughs> over myself. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you learn to uh, to not be uh, uh, so uh, innately codependent uh, <laughs> yeah. in worrying about other people's feelings. Yeah, and and that there's a there's a relevance to that to going into this business, but also uh, healthy competition. That definitely. Yeah, but when you were younger, I mean, you know, you talk about your dad, who's a familiar character to me, the sort of uh, narcissistic. Mm-hmm. Jewish ne'er-do-well. I have one of those uh-huh. as a father. <laughs> you know, not criminal. My dad was not criminal, but certainly selfish. Yeah. But it sounds like your dad, you know, teetered on the edge of criminality. Uh, I, I mean, when he died, yeah. we found um, a couple of uh, bank boxes and security sort of placed here yeah. and there with the uh, hundreds in them. Yeah. He, he uh, At the end of his life, he had a video store. Sure. But he sold porn under the table. Oh, yeah. Well, that's not too bad. Well, no, but yeah. he didn't report it to the IRS either. Yeah. But was he making hundreds of thousands of dollars? No, no, he was, he was getting by. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But by the time you, you, you know, he was able to live long enough to see your success. He was. He was. But I guess the relationship was not at a place where you could carry him. <laughs> no, no, no. But no, but it's one of those moments. You yeah. know, he, no, I, um, Oh God! Uh, he went bankrupt when I was in college, yeah, and that was you know, you know an issue. And uh-huh. and then later when I went abroad, um, I uh, he needed a car, and I loaned him my car. And when yeah. I came back from uh, from <laughs> yeah. France, I found out he'd sold it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. But at the end of toward the end, um, I did loan him about. $15,000 yeah. with which he began this video store Okay, and then ran out the string for 15 more years uh, till the end of his life. So it carried him. Carried him. He did all right. Yeah, he did good. You didn't have to give him any more money. No. Nope. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty good. <laughs> and what about your mom in all this? She was that mom that you want. Uh, were they together? Uh, they were together until about the end of high school. Okay. All right. But she was that person who, when I evidenced any interest in anything, I would then find a book on my dresser the next day. Oh, yeah. She was invested. Um, you know, she had been the assistant director to a high school play. Uh, she'd gone to, uh, dropped out of college to marry, the, ma- marry my father and had three kids within a brief period Mary of time. Marry the charismatic lunatic? Exactly right. Yeah. But, um, no, I even, I talk about this in the book, which is that when I was about 
oh, 14 or 15, I somehow convinced her to take me to the battlefields of the Civil War and tromp up and down because uh, I was interested in those histories. And what, to a reenactment? Yeah, well, no, not, not even the reenactments. Just, just to, the, to like a Vicksburg and stuff? Yeah, and Gettysburg. Uh-huh. And, and uh, I just have this image of her with this, you know, ridiculously avid 14 or 15-year-old, you know, narrating the stories of these battles as she's just tromping in, you know, 90-degree heat yeah. up and down the hills. But yeah. that's a pretty epitomizing you know, uh, sort of description of who she was. Sure, and that it became a through line to uh, you know to the your first big movie. Well, and it had all these other kind of weird coincidences because when I went to college, I would walk through the the public garden of uh, in Boston, yeah. and I saw this monument. And you, I know that monument, of course. And you walk past it the way you do every monument sure. without what looking at it. Yeah. There's sort of this dead history. Yeah. And the first thing you notice is this, you know, this guy and this horse, and you pay no attention. And it isn't until you look closer that you then see that the men marching with him are African-American. Yes. So, yeah, they, it all came together in these odd ways. Robert Lowell wrote a poem about that monument that became about the... about Prayer the, for the Union Dead. Yes. Right? Yep. Did that one get you? You bet. You so, bet. but early on, though, you, you know... Outside of an interest in the Civil War, were you, uh, uh, what were you doing in terms of show business? Not show business. But no, I was a theater kid. You were a theater I kid. I was that theater kid in high, in high school, school doing all the musicals. musicals Your song and dance man? Absolutely. You want me to, I could show you a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> we all were. In, but um, yeah. it was, uh, wasn't actually, I mean, that had, was going to be my course. I, I went to theater. Abro- theater. And I went abroad ostensibly to, observe um, experimental theater companies. Uh, I had a fellowship and I was going to, I watched Peter Brook at the Bouffe du Nord and yeah, I watched right. George Australia. And I did that for at least three weeks. Yeah. I was supposed to do it for a year. Yeah. But Paris turns out to be the best place to watch movies in the world. Right. There was the, yeah. cin- the Cinematheque. Yeah. For a, it was, the dollar was really strong. So for a dollar. Was it early 70s now? Yeah. Yeah. Or mid. And, and for a dollar, you could go to the Cinematheque and see three movies. Yeah. Like six and eight and ten. And it was, you know, it was Fassbinder one night and it was John Ford the next. Wow. And there were these little revival houses. And then I got very, very lucky because I, I, I ended up with a gig working as an assistant to a director in France because I spoke a little bit of, of French and was able to see what that was really all about. And yeah. I, I had been, I'd been, I think, inhibited about that. I directed a lot of plays, but I didn't know anything about exposure and I hadn't, you know, I wasn't that kid. That was set works. I wasn't that kid with a Bolex either. Sure. And then so I saw- So you had no, no sense of movies. No. And I mean, I loved them. Yeah. Adored them, but didn't, felt they were somehow, uh, you know, beyond me. But you did know that, you know, there is, you know, from theater to film, there's a connection, obviously. Uh, yeah, but but construction. Some, and, and, yeah, yeah, but but the funny thing is, there was this kind of weird um, hierarchy about those who considered themselves uh, filmmakers, um, yeah. and and I somehow hadn't learned that that thing. Well, you were young. Yeah, and yeah. but there I was on the set, and I saw this director. Yeah, who's also a writer. Yeah, having surrounded himself with really gifted people who could execute what he had in mind. Yeah, and. Uh, and as long as he had a vision, as long as he could articulate. You can say the guy's name. Oh, no, it was Woody Allen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. And you were working on Love and Death. Yeah, yeah. Love and Death. And uh, it was it was f- one of those formative moments because he was very generous. What if it was a, you fluked into this? Uh, absolute fluke. 
Because that's like something you like. There are certain stories that people have mm-hmm. where it seemed like you you kept sort of uh, you know your trajectory is guided by these moments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know it's fortunate, but I mean, still, it's not like you were blessed. But it could have gone either way. Yeah. But you know, when you got the opportunity, it just was fortuitous. Well, the thing is, it it, it was an opportunity that was actually about an internal understanding of what the process was. It wasn't like an opportunity that led to led led to a job. Sure. But what it did, and particularly when he sh- when I saw a very early draft of Annie Hall, yeah. which at that time was he called- He just showed it to you? Well, I got to know him. So, I mean, you know, so he got, he, he sort of like, this kid wants to do this. Yeah. yeah, and, yeah. and I was the only one there who spoke English. Yeah. And he was lonely. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody else to talk to. Yeah. But, but also, I had observed um, his relationship with Diane Keaton. Yeah. And she was lovely too, but they were no longer together. And I knew that. And then I see this script that's describing a relationship that has been important and ended. Mm. And I, you know, I'm looking at that and I'm looking at them. Yeah. And I realize that here's somebody taking the, you know, the the dross of, of life and turning spinning it into the gold of art. Right. And that became very important to me later on, I think, when we did 30-something. Sure. So yeah, you're able to... Uh... To make that leap for yourself. Yeah. But what I did, having had this experience, rather than go back to New York, and I've been offered a job in the theater, I went, no, I'm going to go to California, and I'm going to reinvent myself the way that everybody always has through history, and I came here not knowing anybody. What year was that? 75 or 6. Wow. What a, what, and you were like 22? Yeah, 23. What yeah, a, yeah that's, uh, that's a ballsy move. Can get pretty lonely out here. Pretty yeah. bleak. Yeah, and I, I applied and I got accepted to the American Film Institute, which at that time was a lot easier to get into. Than like US, uh, UCLA or something? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. What's the big one? USC. Yeah. Yeah, so the American Film Institute. Yeah. But not a slouchy... Uh, oh, no, no, it was, it was fantastic. In yeah. fact, it was run by these really gifted people. And, yeah. and it was a small conservatory where you arrive there and day two you're shooting and you just yeah make, you make... talk about in the book it was uh it it, it was kind of harrowing <laughs> you know you yeah. took you took some hits you're living in a crappy apartment yep yeah and you're doing the la thing yeah and i was unaccustomed to being that that sort of slow kid in the class yeah and i was the least talented among all of them do you think that was it or you just didn't have uh didn't know how to manifest your talent I think both. Yeah. I don't think I, I hadn't really, the penny hadn't dropped. Yeah. I, I didn't really understand what this technology, what 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 the, the nomenclature was. Of yeah. Film. I was, you know, still very green and, and very inhibited about myself. I was imitating other people. I was, I was, felt this critical voice on my shoulder. None of it came from the inside yeah. as it needs to. The critical voice on your shoulder being who? Uh, you? Uh, no, you know, uh, me certainly, my ambition, but, uh, you know, uh, Harvard University and... Uh, you re- went there? Yeah, I did. Undergrad? Undergrad. What'd you major in? Uh, literature. Yeah? Yeah. And, uh, and, and the, the idea was to do what? Uh, I don't know. I guess, I think probably at a certain moment... Uh, and this pertains even to the book. I think at a certain moment, I wanted to be George Orwell. Uh-huh. I wanted to be an essayist, or I wanted to write a righteous essayist. Yeah, I, you know, and I wrote for some magazines. I worked for the New Republic for yeah. a while, and I wrote for Rolling Stone. I thought that was going to be a a course, right? But it wasn't, huh? And uh, parental expectations. 
Harvard, big deal. <laughs> well, that's that's a good one. No, um, when I was graduating and my father had gone bankrupt, uh, I because I was a middle class Jewish kid who felt I had to somehow cover my ass, I applied to the law school. Yeah, and I was accepted. Uh huh. And decided not to go. Uh huh. And on the day that I decided not to go, my father basically you know, said that I was ruining my life. And I said, well, fine, because you've already ruined yours. And we didn't, <laughs> we didn't speak for about two more years. And uh, I came to LA. And, you know, as I was here struggling, and I did struggle, mooched off my girlfriend and read scripts and yeah. did anything I could. A lot of these guys who had graduated with me were taking jobs already for yeah. white shoe law firms in DC and clerking. Mm -hmm. um, Merrick Garland was in my class. Yeah. You know, watch that trajectory. Sure. He took a hit, though. <laughs> he's yeah. doing, he, I think he's, he's doing, doing all right. right now. He's doing all right now. You in touch with him? Uh, yeah, actually. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How you doing, Merrick? <laughs> well, you know, there, there, there are certain uh, Chinese firewalls about what you can talk about and what you can't. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. yeah. You got to be careful what you text the uh, exactly. uh, attorney general. But it is interesting, I think, because the thrust of the book is educational to some degree in terms of. Of, of pursuing a life in show business that a lot of people started as script readers. Oh yeah. And, and it was, it's just this weird, horrible job. Yeah. But you know, what you do is it's, it's like those little signs when they say no smoking and there's a cigarette and a red line through yeah. a circle saying, don't do this. Right. It's a lot of learning by negative example. Right. Um, or, or just, uh, just becoming somehow, somehow uh, fluent in the different, structures and the the expectations of genre or oh in, oh in terms of reading and yeah you, know, you kind of the form yes and so you read a lot of bad scripts yep yep but when does the opportunity start uh it was one of those things where uh i thought it would never start and what were you doing though were you were you thinking about leaving you know because i mm. you know were you you know, were you writing things? What were you writing? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. Marshall Herskovitz and I had met in film school. And, He's your production partner? Yeah, yeah. and has been writing partner and yeah. all that and more. Best friend probably forever. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we graduated and I eventually got... From AFI. From AFI. And I got... Nobody wanted to see my student film. Um, what was it about? Oh, uh, it was, uh, gee, a father-son story. Isn't that surprising? Hey, what happens? Do you kill him? <laughs> So, anyhow, uh, we uh, we would we started writing a few things together, but I got a job based on the script to that student film. It got to a, a producer of another television show that was folding. He Which was one was that? It was called James at Fifteen. I kind of remember that one. You do? Yeah, it was not wasn't on that long. It's like an after school special vibe. Ex to exactly. It. He was a, a guy named Richard Kramer, talented writer who had been brought out from New York. He'd written a short story in the New Yorker. Who's the actor in that? I remember that kid. La Kerwin, something yeah, Kerwin. So, yeah, maybe, Lance yeah, Kerwin, yeah, Brian yeah, Kerwin, something like someone that. Kerwin. Yeah. Yeah. In any case, uh, he was good enough to send my script to this these producers of another television show, and they liked it. Yeah. And so they asked me to come meet. I did. And, you know... Were you 25? Even younger, probably 24, 25, yeah. 25, yeah. yeah. And I uh, I wrote something for them, and they liked it, and they invited me to go on the show, to be on, uh, in fact, a story editor yeah. on the show. And days were different. There was nobody, it wasn't a staff. There was this lovely woman named Carol McKeon, who yeah. was the producer-writer producer -writer, and her husband, and me. So that they were doing 22 episodes a year, 
Wow. And I was literally deep into the pool. I mean, I wrote day and night. She rewrote every There's word. There's no I, writer's room? Nothing. Didn't exist. Huh. 22 episodes. Think about it. The three of you. Three of us. And yeah. only two of us really writing. We had, we had writers, freelance writers come in whom we would rewrite. Uh-huh. And she would rewrite every word I wrote. Yeah. But it was an extraordinary kind of discipline which I didn't have any right. before that point. Yeah. And I learned it in a hurry. Wow. And you wrote on that for how many seasons? Two. And actually the second season, they decided that they were going to go do their own thing and they left and I was left to produce the show at 25 years old. So you're making a lot of coin. All of a sudden I went from zero to 60 in about, you know, 3.6 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. And so that changes everything. Now you're a TV writer. I'm a TV writer and my work is terrible. Why do you think that? Because, again, I was just imitating. I was doing what they had but done. You were, make, you were churning out what needed to be done. You were doing the job, right? I was doing the job, but I would look at my work when it was done, and, yeah. and I was ashamed. It was just not to the level that I had hoped my work would ever be. Right. Well, that's an artistic intuition or, or judgment, but you were servicing the vehicle that you were hired to do. Right. Yeah. Yes, but I, but I had had my head turned by going to a film school where they would talk about, you know— uh, John Ford and Fellini and that Expressing I thought yourself. I, ah, tours. I, so I, would, I was going to come out of there and yeah. I was going to, uh, and by the way, you have to remember the moment. Yeah. This is the moment when um, Coppola is doing Apocalypse Now. This is the moment. It's, it's after when, all those guys broke through, midway through. And so that's what I'm seeing yes. when I'm going to the movies at night and instead I'm writing stuff that I wouldn't watch. Yeah, you're writing the, you know, you are a sellout. Yeah, already at 25. <laughs> <laughs> Beating yourself up. Uh-huh. Watching Apocalypse Now and being there. And- All of it. I mean, that you, you look at what the movies were in 1979, for instance. Uh. Oh, my God. It's all those guys really coming into themselves. Some yeah. of them actually yeah. pass their creative genius, oddly. But, uh, but yeah, but all the uh, guys from the early 70s, you know, really delivering the goods. Oh, and yeah. there you were. Writing TV. Uh, exactly. But okay, so that's a lot of pressure. You're writing a show called Family. Yeah. And this is and this is what you're up against. This is your dream, that list. Yeah. And you're sitting there in an office now running the show. Well, and then the show ends. And, and was it a popular show? Oh, uh, it was critically popular. What I mean, is it what network? ABC. Okay. But you know what happens is that that I um have made a classic mistake, which is I took some of the money and I bought a little house. And then I couldn't afford to pay for the mortgage. And so I had to maybe get another job of that sort and try to find a you, way. You to, bought in. I did. I absolutely. Did you have a kid already? No, not yet. Did you have a wife? Not yet. You bought a house without either of those? Absolutely. And then you're stuck. And then I'm stuck. Yeah. And so I'm scrambling. Uh, and and Marshall uh, is scrambling. Uh, we're, we're, we're getting work, but he's in the same predicament. He's writing for... Seven brides for seven brothers. He's writing for chips, and and we're both Ugh. and we're both slowly dying. Um, You're film directors, exactly. And so, what do we do? We we get together every day, and we just whine and moan, and you know, contemplate our fate. Yeah. And then one day, I um, have this terrible anxiety dream. Yeah. And the dream is about nuclear proliferation, and Marshall. And I are talking, and he says, well, that's a movie. And I said, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. And he said, no. Um, and we start talking about how one could do 
television that wasn't television. In other words, let me, uh, I was thinking of, of something like the Battle of Algiers. Yeah. About docudrama. Right. And could we tell a story that somehow was in the same vernacular as watching something happen on television and only seeing what you would see while on television. Mm -hmm. And we go in and we pitch this and we happen to find a seam in the universe. We go to ABC, NBC yeah. when they are in the toilet. Yeah. Um, they don't know what else to do. And the guy who gives us the, who hires us to write the script is then fired. And then the next person to who is supposed to improve it is leaving his job and it slowly works its way through the system until we get a yes. But it's never clear who has given us that yes. That's weird because usually they would have scrapped you. So I guess the guy at the top wasn't fired yet. Well, that was Brandon Tartikoff. Okay. And the script gets to Brandon Tartikoff. Yeah. And he reads it and he says, well, I have no idea what to do with this, but I like this. And all, what was the pitch? It was, <laughs> it was just the what I just said to you. You are watching. It's a little vague. Think, well, no. Think of think of War of the Worlds. Okay. Think of what that was like yeah. when you radio turned broadcast. on the radio, yeah. and it was as if it was really happening. Yeah. That was about a Martian invasion. Sure. This is about nuclear terrorism. Oh yeah. And they say yes. Uh, Brandon is friends at that time with a guy named Don Olmeyer. Sure. Who's a sports guy? Yep. Uh, he had helped sort of create. NBC Sports with Rune Arledge. And he knew about the technology and the technology was changing. Right. It was about remote cameras and it was about all sorts of different approaches toward what news should look like. Anyway, we get to make this that, thing. And a lot of that was figured out in Munich. Absolutely. As a, because of that terrorist attack. Precise, I just... Precisely right. So we make this and uh, they look at it and they like it. What was it called? It was called Special Bulletin. Mm. And so we make it, and in the penultimate moment when it's supposed to go on the air, yeah. the news division of, of NBC looks at it and says, you can't air this. People are going to be scared. They're going to be terrified. They're gonna, this is, this is going to freak out. And not only that, but it's going to, in some sense, um, you know, work against our... Uh, prestige or our credibility of the yeah. news division. Yeah, yeah. And they want him to cancel it. And they want it not to air it. And, you know, uh, under those uh, sort of the dictum of, uh, you know, uh, rather to better ask for uh, an apology than to ask for permission. Yeah. We send it to, uh, to Howard Rosenberg and to John O'Connor. These guys were the critics of TV at the time. Yeah. And they love it. Yeah. And they go to bat for it. And so by the time it goes on the air, it's a sort of cause celebre among the business. Huh. Yeah. And it then wins every award. Really? It won. We won Emmys. It was a one-off? It was a one-off. We won all the Emmys for writing and directing. We won the DGA and the WGA and the Peabody. And no all kidding. of us. And all of a sudden, the world changed. For you. For me. And yeah. for Marshall, too. But right. I, I get a call, you know, Sidney Pollack, who's just taken over, uh, helping advise them at TriStar. Would I like to make movies? Sidney Pollack's the best. He was the best. He was very important to me. Yeah? Yeah. He was very important to me. Solid yeah. guy? Really solid guy. An anxious guy. You know, um, a complex guy. Seems like it. But, but really... Uh, you know, someone who was a, a real believer. He'd been in part of the actor's studio. He'd, sure. You know, come up through television the same way. I think he had some sympathy for where 
my trajectory had been. A great actor, great director. Great, great both. Yeah. 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 So, okay, so you meet him. He pulls you in. Pulls me in. Both of you? Uh, Marshall, yeah, too? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yes, in fact, um, we both write a script together that he just trashes. And <laughs> Sydney does. He, Sydney does. I've never been torn apart um, more ferociously um, uh, because we were. Uh, what was the criticism? Well, I, I remember something he said to me that became a kind of a, of a watchword. He said, I don't think it started with schmuck, but it yeah. could have been. Don't you realize that the I was I was I was defending the plot and saying yeah. it was so cool. And yeah. I remember him saying, "Plot is the meat that the burglars throw to the dogs when they climb over the wall to get the jewels, yeah. which are the characters." Nice. Yeah, you have a little list in here. You do a lot of lists throughout the book about the things that you learned from Sydney. Yeah. 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 And you guys were friends for a long time. What did you ultimately end up making with him? Uh, well, the, I, I made um, this movie that was based on Dave, David Mamet's uh, sexual perversity sure. in Chicago. About last night. And it was night. called About Last yeah, Night. right. And that was for that studio. For TriStar. For TriStar. And then Glory was also for TriStar. Uh-huh. And uh, So and the then, sexual perversity in Chicago. The thing that, that interests me about the process of being a director or what you were heading into is that it requires, you know, I don't know whether you... you you would frame it that way, but it requires a certain patience because, you know, shit does not work out oh, and fact. things take time. Yep. And you, you seem to have a, a balance with that stuff. But for someone like me, who's probably undiagnosed ADHD, <laughs> you know, insanity, I would be screaming and yelling on phones and, and losing my mind. But it seems like the amount of patience required to let things fall into place if and when they're going to is unbearable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say... Patience, I think sometimes it's a lot about gaming something where you're not doing one thing at a time. Uh-huh. There would be often two or three things that I would be, like horses that I've been trying to get to the gate. And then you're waiting to see how the stars align, literally the stars, sometimes the movie stars. Right. But, but it's, if you think of a, of, a, of a slot machine and it has to be three cherries, sure. it has to be the money, it has to be the studio, and it has to be the actor. Right. So and if you of, get a few thing, a few plates in the air, that's right. At least you're distracted. It's precisely. And then you get a call, and they're like, you know, Julia's ready, and you're on a plane. Right. But then you drop the other thing. Well, or you hope that they somehow are becalmed and you can, they're like, waiting alternate. for you when yeah, you come yeah. back. So with about last night, I mean, what had to fall in place for that? Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, it had been owned by Jonathan Demme, uh-huh. these great producers in Chicago, uh, sure. Stuart Oaken and Jason Brett. And yeah. then Jonathan uh, got distracted by something else or the studio didn't want to make it at the time. And it yeah. became a free ball. And I read it and met with them. They wanted me to do it. And and also, I think the fact that uh, that when Rob Lowe wanted to do it, who was a sort of kid on the rise that yeah. gave it some credibility and then i was able to make it for very little money at yep. the time and uh and then it did exceedingly well and that puts you on the map definitely definitely but then like you know when you talk about the whole process of 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 pulling glory together you yeah. know in terms of the a pre-existing script what are you going to do with that script yeah you know, how does that sort of, you know, where do you take that? How do you get the support? I mean, it's a big, a big tale. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know how to say it. it I mean, I, I, the analogy might to be, might be being an architect and you draw plans and then never get to build the building. 
and you do that again and again. I've often asked myself, I would say that there are probably an equal number of those things that I have created. Well, that, well, in the, you actually, that actually happens to you with Shakespeare in Love. Yep. yep. You built the building. Yep. And then you don't get to live in it. But the, the story with Glory, though, and all the things that had to be pulled together. And then, like, for me, one of the most um, impactful passages in the book was you figuring out how to do a shot you couldn't afford. Right. A long shot of that fort. Yep. And and where you drew inspiration from because you you realized the technique had been applied before by Kurosawa. Was yeah. it Kurosawa? Yeah, it was Kurosawa. I, I probably looked at Ron about 20 times because he didn't have enough money either. For specifically for that fort scene. Specifically for that attack. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, what he did, because he was a genius, and he basically reinvented film vernacular with Seven Samurai, mm. um, he filled the frame. He figured out how to, that if you had enough money for a certain number of big shots, yeah, and if you were able to shoot them in one day or two days, you could then go and articulate it in a more micro way, and when you would put those shots of a smaller scale intercut with those bigger shots in our imaginations, we would see it all as being big. Right, and that's it's 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 just a riff on the trick that Eisenstein did. I mean, it's just it's that's right. Just a power of montage applied right. to a different to a frame. That's right. Yeah. Um, but the truth is, I don't think I could have done Glory had I not done forty hours of thirty something and the TV before it, where you learn the meat and potatoes. So in between about last night and Glory, you did thirty something. Yeah. yeah. And that was your creation with Marshall. Yeah. You guys invented it. Yep. So that was a big show. Yeah. And it was a big uh, a, a big sort of like gab fest of uh, yuppie gab fest. <laughs> right? Yeah. So like it, it became sort of, it changed the vernacular of television. It did. I mean, I think the funny thing about that is that it was, you know, a group of people who are related in various ways who are basically just dealing with each other. And at the time, it was revolutionary because in television, everybody else was a doctor or a lawyer or a fireman or a policeman. And, and also half of them were funny. Yes. <laughs> or, <laughs> yes. Trying to be and, funny. No. And the funny thing now is that's what all of television is, where everyone, it's all contriving different ways for these people to be in relationship to each other without that franchise. Right. Now, but was that, was that coming off or pre predating The Big Chill? Well, that's it. Larry had done The Big Chill in movies. Right. And John Sayles had done The Trial of the Secaucus 7. Right. And so that existed. Right. It just hadn't existed in television. But that was the generation. That was when they were still called yuppies. Now somehow they're just boomers. Right. Now it's a broader swath. You're right. I think I think yuppie was pejorative, and I think boomer tends to be a little bit more, you know. Broad. It's pejorative to the the following generation. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, boomer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, interesting. So so that was a lesson in working with actors, working in structure, working with uh, budgets that required attention mm -hmm. uh, in terms of uh, making something. How, how to, how to, yeah, and how to extend a dollar, how, yep. to, how to literally spend the you know, smart money rather than stupid money. But then all that stuff in, uh, in the story about Glory, about dealing with stars, dealing yep. with Broderick, uh, yep. Matthew Broderick, dealing with his mother. Yep. That the patience of that, like, because I have found lately, you know, that, that my... My sense, and I think you have it. You you love movie stars. Yeah, I, I guess I guess that's true. <laughs> and, and you know, and learning to work with them obviously is part of your job. But but for me, it's not part of my job. And I am always amazed at 
a certain amount of natural talent that they have, but also just their presence is is somewhat uh, miraculous. It is. It, it they are, it is real. Um, yeah. I and, know. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, and but also I think I also think that they are that they are absolutely every bit as smart as we are. They just don't necessarily have the same language. And I think we mistake you mean, that as we are regular people. You mean? <laughs> well, or we who approach it from right. a more intellectual sure. way, sure, sure. That okay. rather than that that very visceral, very intuitive way. Right. They have stomach brains. Yeah. They know what they can do and can't do. You diminish them at your own expense, at your own peril, uh-huh. in terms of what they can bring, because they are to their job. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, it's interesting. And I know that in the beginning of my career, I was over-controlling. I was trying to over-determine things. Yeah. And that, that I think, was beginning to often limiting what I could then get from someone who's a genuine artist. Well, I mean, and this was a challenging movie, and I I don't want to linger on too long. You have a lot of movies, but we don't have to go through everything. But but with Glory, I mean, there's a lot in the balance there. You know, there's representation. Yep. Uh, of of African Americans, yep. there's the you know white savior pop problem. Mm-hmm. There's the nation, just the notion that now whether or not you could even direct that movie. Uh, but ultimately, I think it's a an honest and balanced movie. I think so. In relation to the the story and to race, mm-hmm. I think. I mean, it has the advantage of being true yeah. and documented. Yes, and so you know to have denied either part of the movie would have been bulldozing the history. But but you also it was you had to learn, you know, on on set uh, about the the community of of African Americans that evolved during the shooting. Absolutely. And then you also had to make choices about uh, the this kind of imposed righteousness of Matthew's mom mm-hmm. in terms of abolitionists and and mm-hmm. representing them. Yep. in two uh, elitist away would have uh, undermined uh, effort. And in fact, it was, I mean, I, I think that there was something that I was seeing that was undeniable. It was just happening in front of me that, that, that Denzel and Morgan and Jimmy and Andre, that they were in a kind of rapture. Mm. They were, they, they heard something. They were, um, it's their history. It was their history. And, and in fact, I, initially may have been uh, timid or, or hesitant mm. to uh, take advantage of that until I thought about my own grandfather and how easily it would have been for me to lapse into that sort of shtetl dialect sure. because it was available to me in the same way this was all available to them. It comes down through the generation. It's right there. Yeah. And um, so what I did, and, and I'm, this is something I'm proud of in the yeah. movie, which is I resisted these impulses to turn it into that white savior narrative yeah. because there were pressures on all sides to do something like that. Yeah. And I did not. In fact, I did the opposite. It's an amazing story because ultimately the lesson of it has nothing to do with the battle because it was lost. Exactly. I mean, the war was won, but even the battle that was supposed to, they were servicing knowing they were going to sacrifice themselves. Right. Failed. Yeah. And that's a heavy ending. But it is the history of the struggle. Exactly. And, and in fact, I had a great professor in, uh, in college who was talking about Shakespeare. He said the thing about tragedy is it's the most restful, hmm. is that it conforms to something we understand about life. Yeah. And that in some sense there was that these men were doomed. Yep. And there's something beautiful in their sacrifice. And also you were able to, yeah, there's a nice turn in the book, at bringing that teacher of yours from high school. Yeah. 
that it was important to you. Yeah, it was. And in fact, that was my own, you know, moment for that movie was when then he saw that movie. Yeah, and you didn't know if he had, and then you saw him. Yeah. It was, it was a good moment, right? Yeah, one of those moments. Yeah. Better than an Oscar? Yeah, I think so. Sure. I mean, you know, yeah. Because sure. because he planted the seed, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's it's rare you get any kind of closure in that kind of relationship. That's true. Uh, where you can say, look, and especially when you have, uh, you know, a, a, a fucked up dad, so you're not going to get what you need from him. Oh, you notice that. Yeah. But <laughs> but but you just like, you know, the struggle is is to let go of the idea that that dad is going to give you what you need. Right. And then you have these other people in your life mm -hmm. because you find them in order to put yourself together. That's right. And uh, one of them shows up. Who did you have? I had a few. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that when you have selfish, erratic fathers, you have a series of mentors. It seems like uh -huh. you did as well. You know, whether, yeah. it, you know, it's Sydney or this guy or mm -hmm. whatever. I had a guy who owned a bookstore for uh -huh. a while. And, you know, I've had some bad mentors, sure. you know, when I was younger as a comic, you know. and But, but they, they, they keep coming. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes I guess I'm old now, but, but yeah, you rely on them you know, or else you have no, have you been mentorial to other younger ones? I guess so. You know, this show is, is fairly relevant to a lot of people. Sure. So, so that happens twice a week. And, you know, I try to give reasonably honest advice, mm -hmm. which is, you know, get out of show business. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long shot, man. Yeah. And if you're not cut out for it, figure it out. Yep. Right? Yep. I mean, yep. what else are you going to say? I mean, even this lovely book you wrote with all these practical advice to directing movies. I mean, you know, that can all make sense to somebody, but then you got to get in. I mean, you got to get in. Yeah. And but the, but to the benefit is that anybody can put something out. You bet. You know, you you the you can do that. Yeah, it's it sort of it sort of reverses the old sort of um the uh the, the Marxist dictate which it used to be that they controlled the means of production. Now the means of production are available, but now it's about the means of distribution. Sure. Well, that's interesting. But eventually, you know, when a, a lot of times they will control the means of production. Yes. yes. <laughs> they, they, either you're lucky enough to, uh, to get, you know, to sell it yourself and make your own little world of show business or the means of production will take your thing. <laughs> that's true. And, and do it. Yep. Uh, but yeah, but the other thing is definitely available and it's a, it's, uh, you can keep pushing, you know? Yeah. But, you know, throughout the the career, you know, you talk about the failure of leaving normal. Mm -hmm. You know, that was a timing thing. And, you know, you had other struggles with actresses and what was going to happen. The other story in here is producing Shakespeare in Love, which was, that was crazy. That whole thing was crazy. You know, you were going to direct it, falls apart. There's a battle with Weinstein, the monster. There's all that stuff. That's all in there. Yep, that's all there. And you didn't end up getting it directed. That must have hurt. After all that work with Stoppard and everything else, killed me, killed me. And I, I looked couldn't at, imagine. You know, but there's, but it's never a question of if you're going to get knocked down in this business. It's just about when. But the, but you stay. Somehow, and what do you do? What do you do? Are you going to get up or not? What's your choice? But but over the year, how many like what, what from the beginning from when you took that on when you got that script and you 
convince mm-hmm. Tom Stopper to fix it. And then, you know, you get going. I'm, what I was trying to tell you is I, I become less tolerant of movie stars the more I read books like yours or the more I hear stories. I heard Vim Vendors the other night talking about Harry Dean Stanton not understanding why there couldn't be a happy ending to Paris, Texas. And I was like, oh, my God. Was that guy a moron? So, but that's not what they're hired for. They're hired to act. Not hired to understand necessarily, right? Yeah, I guess uh, it's 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 just it's not as simple as that. It's not. They are. I know they're out there. You know, the, I love them. There's some great movie stars. You're out there. You're in the ca- space in the capsule. They're on a spacewalk, untethered, with zero g, and and they're floating in some sense. And you're there with a cup of coffee, and you know, presuming to. I to, guess to so. I, I understand that, but sometimes, like you know, I, I had dinner with James Gray last night. Uh huh. It's just that there's sometimes like you know when you you know not leaving the trailer, this you know the the fights and stuff. It, there's some part of me because you know I I think I'm more probably like a little more codependent, and maybe somewhat like you, where you're like, what what it, what are they doing? <laughs> <laughs> it's like what kind of bullshit is this? I mean, well, grow the fuck up. Wait. You know, it's it's a lot of that is is fear, and a lot of it. I mean, fear leads people to behave badly, and a lot of that is fear. And I guess there's a lot in the balance. There's a lot to carry a movie. It is. I mean, you talk about making Legends of the Fall and working with Brad. Yeah, but like for instance, even I. This is the first time in this book I've had the privilege of writing things in the mouths and putting them in the mouths of pretty people well lit over there on the stage yes this is the first time i've written in the first person sure and i feel a vulnerability that's utterly different than i might have had um when i was sort of protected yeah and guarded yeah they're unguarded and and in fact if i get sent to movie jail which i have been before for uh, for for leaving norm yeah but i can write my way out of it or i care i carry it all with me and an actor is out there in some sense dependent on that thing, they feel that they're they're going to be succeed or fail at this point, and may never be able to understand how they got to that point again. I okay, I, I understand that. I'm like I'm not judging. I'm I'm just having a human experience right. with their behavior, and your your experience with their behavior is something you have to artistic sort of be empathetic with. But also, cri- but also, um, it's not that that bothers me. It's ingratitude. Yeah, when you encounter that, and you see someone. Um, taking something for granted that is a privilege. Right. That's the thing that makes me crazy. In an actor or in anybody? Anybody, but particularly in an actor. Yeah. And it, it, it's it, it's a hell of a balance. And you've worked with the biggest actors. I mean, you know, the, the story with Brad, who was young. You forget these guys were young. You know, Legends of the Fall, which he did a great job in, but ultimately yeah. was not an easy shoot in a lot of ways. Right. But, you know, as, you know, as the arc kind of continues and you know after all is said and done you had a moment with him yep yep and 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 look we're all really in some sense reactive passionate triggered people by very intense situations and 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 that sometimes yields behavior that is extreme and it it really depends how you address that um, look, and he talked about Sydney, Sydney, and Redford. I'm very interested in all these um, directors and actors who have made multiple movies together because yeah. you create uh, a shorthand, but it doesn't mean that it's easy. I've made three movies with Denzel, right? And 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 the 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 relationship will ebb and flow and be you know sometimes day to day. What was the third one? 
Uh, it's called The Siege. Oh, so you did Courage Under Fire? Yeah. And The Siege? Yeah. And Well, that guy's uh, unbelievable. He's, he's the best. There's nobody better that I could point to as a career. But but just like, you know, knows, like I had Ethan Hawke in here once, and I'll never forget it. When he was preparing for training day. Yep. He watched Denzel movies like they were game films. <laughs> so he would be able to hold his own. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, in frame with him. And, and I've talked to Ethan about this too. I mean, I think at least a third of what Denzel does in that movie is improvised. It's big, man. It's they big. really, he really let it loose. He did. Right? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's remarkable. And you saw him at the beginning in yeah, Glory. Yeah. And it was there then. I mean, there was a guy who, the man who produced the movie was a guy named Freddie Fields, a famous scoundrel, yeah. legendary agent. And the minute we looked at um, Denzel um, on the screen, I remember him sitting in the back of the room saying, yeah. Jesus Christ, the kid carries his own lights. <laughs> wow. <laughs> You're yeah. in a scene with a group of five other people and he's the only person you could look at. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll go, like, I'm not a huge action movie guy, but lately I have been. Yeah, so you'll go see The Equalizer? I do. Uh -huh. I'll go see him do that. Uh -huh. It's pretty great. He, now he's old, too, and he's still doing it. Look well. at that watch. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> but it's still satisfying, yep. right? Yep, yep. And then, like, with Tom Cruise, too, I mean, it took you a while to, to work with him, right? And you did... Well, I mean, he, I mean he, this is important to say. I mean, there's nobody easier to work with than Tom Cruise. Yeah. I mean, he, his willingness to jump in and, right. And he's not, he's not going to be a difficult movie star. Oh no, not at all. Yeah. No. Well, fun to work with. Yeah. I like that movie. Yeah. Last Samurai. Yeah. It was fun. It was, it was one of those experiences that you can actually make some bold decisions, you know, directorially and feel a little bit of like David lean for a minute or two. Big. Yeah. Expansive. Yeah. But it's always glory, but you, you have more money with yeah. Samurai, right? Yeah. yeah. So you get more horses. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Take a little more time with the horses. But uh, DiCaprio, too, with Blood Diamond, you work with that guy. You know, and when you're starting to talk, like, about Tom or about DiCaprio, they are, as, they are at ease with their professionalism uh -huh. and their position and their ability that it, does not become complex. In fact, it, they were, they were, DiCaprio is a wonderful collaborator and he's there to do the work. Yeah. And, and it was, it was a, you know, difficult movie. He, he got hurt. Bud Diamond. He got hurt during it. He hurt his yeah. hamstring and didn't let it show. He just was a gamer. And, uh, yeah, I, uh, I think one reason that I got along with Cruz is he'd been a wrestler too. Come on. True. You're, yeah. you're able to use your 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 wrestling bona fides. <laughs> I think so. Wow, but uh, you know, all in all, with almost any movie, something has to. A lot of things have to cosmically come together mm -hmm. for it to work. Mm -hmm. you, you know, and and there's so many people that are being part of it. You know, even when you were talking uh, uh, when there, about Legends of the Fall, mm -hmm. where the wardrobe budget went mm -hmm. crazy because, you know, you, how, how the hell are you going to know that? Right. Uh, but when all these things balance out, you know, you have this collaborative, uh, amazing piece of work. And, and there's no way, all you can do is, is set the stage for that to happen. Well, you know, what you're, what you, the process is that you have a script and you pray that it raises the hair on your arms, that it, is, it feels like a, a thing itself, yeah. right? 
you then deconstruct it. Things are broken up into their little discrete parts and they're spread out all over weeks and months and years. And you pray that when you put it together, that it has the same integrity of like a a car that's dissembled and put together and does it run? Does it have that same power and speed? Um, That's why you talk about scripts. That's why you realize that that is the money right there. Yeah. That is the, the, the blueprint and it has to have integrity and it has to be tested and stress tested and all sorts of things because at the end of the day, that's what it's going to be. Yes, it can be elevated, uh-huh. but it either exists or doesn't exist. That is the foundation. Yeah. I mean, you, you should be able to, you know, kick it and throw it down a flight of stairs and it would still be itself. Right. Right. And and the process of, of hammering that out, which you do again and again, mm-hmm. again you know, with these again. different projects. Yep. Uh, that, you know, that it's not the most work, but you know, the work that has to go into just getting to the starting point yeah. is crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. And is it still like that for you? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the difference I think is that, is that the business now, what seems to be, we can talk all about, you know, IP yeah. and we can talk about superheroes and all of that. And we know what effect that's had. Right. But the decisions to make a thing that is iconoclastic is more difficult because the decisions are being made by groups. Right. In other words, I think it's a legacy of Silicon Valley where things are talked about to the team. Things have to be acceptable. That wasn't the old school way. You you kind of went up the chain of a studio. And and usually one person took on the agency and they they advocated for that thing and drove it through. Right. And and in each of those things I was able to do, it's because finally one person put them their ass on the line. Right. And these days when you're try, trying to talk about a thing that appeals to everyone, mm. that's business. That's not art. That's that's commercial. That's commerce. Right. And and you know when things are homogenized, they tend to be less good. Right. And I think that's one of the differences why there are any any number of economic differences, obviously why there aren't as many of those movies as that list that you talked about in 1979. But the other reason is that there is not the willingness to allow that singularity of vision to to rule or to lead. Right. Because everyone's afraid about taking the hit, losing the money. Exactly. Who's going to get blamed? It's it, a it's dispersion. It's like displacing blame seems to be the game on yeah, executive and, and, level. Yeah, and and the protection of your downside, right? But and also also the algorithm. Sure, the algorithm is not your friend. Of course not. It's a fucking nightmare. Exactly. It's making everybody crazy. That's right. Every different algorithm. Everyone's being algorithmed into uh, shallowness or insanity. Right. But but oddly, you know, you look at this year's movies. You know, in, in relation to that list again, there's some pretty singular visions. You know, what happens is you gain a certain amount of um, currency in a career of capital as a director, and then you choose to spend it and you get that opportunity. That's what Greta has. Yeah. That's what Chris had with Bradley. What Bradley's had. Yeah. Deservedly so. Yeah. If you screw the pooch with it, you're not going to get it the second time. Now, maybe somebody else will. Right. But- that's happened to me too. I mean, there have been moments when I've had that capital, I've been able to spend and enforce that vision upon a, a, a more reluctant, you know, financial universe. Well, I mean, it seems like, well, I mean, you could sort of see in the way, you know, the filmography plays out, right? Yep. 
So the sea, Courage Under, you know, you had a really good run, right? Legends, yep. Courage Under Fire, Siege, Last Samurai did well, right? Blood Diamond, okay? Yeah. Yeah? And then uh, Defiance. Yeah, well, How'd I mean, do? but there's a pretty good example. It's a good oh, movie. Yeah, but you see, that's it. I had this capital. I wanted to make a movie about the Jews. Yeah. I wanted to make a tough movie Jews. about a tough, tough Jews. Yeah. And the answer is, okay, do that. With and, Daniel Craig. Do it I, with James Bond. <laughs> 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 and it did okay, yeah. but it didn't set the world on fire. Right. You know, and so then you take a step back and it's, it's just been this, it's, it is, if you look at anybody's IMDb, any good director's IMDb, it's the same story. Yeah. Right. No, but then you go from, uh, uh, that to, uh, love and other drugs, which is an entertaining movie. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. but did it take? Yeah, it did fine. It did fine. Yeah. Um, pawn sacrifice. Yeah. I don't know what that one was. About Bobby Fisher. Oh. It's uh, Bobby Fisher and Boris Spassky. I missed and that one. That's a good one. That's a good story. It's a good movie. Yeah. yeah. But again, didn't get the right distribution. Jack Reacher, though. You're back. Um, you see, it's up, up, <laughs> up and down. Up and, then, and down. And then The Great Wall. Ooh. Ooh. What happened there? Well. How'd you how'd oh. you shoulder that controversy? I, uh, I walked away. Uh, I was in the Gobi Desert, and I was dealing with a company that was lying to me, and I said, thank you very much, goodbye. And they let them take you know part of the script, and yeah. I let someone else direct it. Okay. All right, so so you they did. Pick, they picked on the wrong hippie. Okay, <laughs> got out. I got, you out. got out. Yeah, and I didn't. I didn't see these new ones. Yeah, I didn't see American Assassin. Yeah, I should see it. No. Okay. You oh, you didn't direct that one. No. And I didn't see Trial by Fire. Uh, it's an interesting movie. Yeah. Again, uh, uh, it, it's a movie. It's a, a movie about capital punishment. And it's a, a strong movie. Okay. And all the ones you, you know, you produced a lot too. And I, you know, I don't think I, you know, you did, well, Shakespeare in Love, that mm -hmm. story's a, a tremendous story. Traffic, amazing. Yeah, that was, a, it was a, that was actually a great, great result. I, it's a, I love that movie. Yeah. I Am Sam, interesting. Yeah, fun. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the commentary on I Am Sam in Tropic Thunder is the, the, the best. Yeah, I, I, I have to agree. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is the best um but yeah you keep going man and uh and i uh and i i found the book enjoyable and readable but also because i'm i'm planning i'm right now in the process i optioned my buddy's book and we're kind of we're working on a script uh -huh. i'm planning to direct it okay so it's actually very helpful to me i i i well, nothing could make me happier that that, that, that that's um, you know oh, been, yeah. been of service. It has been, <laughs> and it was good. great talking to you, man. This Thanks for really coming by. Fun. Thanks, Mark. There you go, Ed Zwick. The book hits, flops, and other illusions is available tomorrow wherever you get books. Hang out for a minute, people. Will you? Hey, folks, this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. You know all those times you've heard guests sneeze on the show. Well, actually, you don't hear any of that because we cut the sneezes out when we're editing. But take my word for it, people definitely sneeze in here, and when they 
they do, I've got a box of Kleenex on the table right in front of them so they can use one and get right back to business. And here's what Kleenex means to me, a tissue that will hold up. We've all used those other tissues that you blow holes right through. When I see Kleenex, I know that tissue is up for the job. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Five years ago, folks, we aired a momentous episode. In advance of my guest appearance on The Simpsons, I sat down with cast member Yardley Smith for a full WTF interview. But I also got to talk to Krusty the Clown. Red Fox. Oh, boy, do I had stories about he was so dirty. Funny. Very funny, but yeah. dirty. I, yeah. I used to open for him. Yeah, but you know. Oh, like, I what? I couldn't say a single joke that he said on this it's a podcast. Really? You say say whatever you want. Oh yeah, let me let me whisper it in your ear first. Uh, the other day, I was uh, and then I uh, yeah. said, "What?" Jesus! That, now that's in my head. I'll never get that out of my head. God, that is filthy. You know, you ruined donuts for me. I, I, I you ruined them. You ruined and them for me too. I love donuts, and now not never again. Oh my God, oh my God Krusty! I know I'm on blintzes now. Polluted my brain. Blintzes, how are they? They good? Oh, they're great. Oh, Red Fox got another dirty story about that. Oh, want to yeah. hear? Yeah. And there's a oy vey. Oh my God! I didn't even eat that many blintzes. Now I'm, I'm sorry for the ones I did eat. Do you want me to ruin any other food for you? Oh, with a Red Fox joke. It's a great diet. That's episode 994 with Yardley Smith and Krusty the Clown. You can listen to that right now on all podcast platforms. To get every episode of WTF ad-free, sign up for WTF+. Plus. Just click on the link in the episode description or go to WTFpod.com and click on WTF+. Plus. Here's a lick that I think I've done 90 variations of before. Monkey and LaFonda, cat angels everywhere. All right.